Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good evening, everyone, and thanks for being here to this really exciting book event. And this is a really important book by a really outstanding AEI scholar and an American, an American hero, someone we're very proud of at AEI, Scott Gottlieb. Thank you for being here, Scott. Um, we're talking about his new book, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic, uh, which is out now and will, will be uh, uh, available at bookstores all over America. Um, I don't want to get too much into an introduction for Scott because I think everyone knows him. But it's important to remind everybody that he is an AEI scholar. He served in the Bush administration at FDA before the Trump administration. Then he was the FDA commissioner. Uh, then after he left the, the Trump administration, he has spent really the last couple years helping our country get through this crisis we faced with solid, empirical, direct, honest, uh, straightforward uh, guidance and advice. And on top of all that, he's nominated for an Emmy because of his uh, performance uh, on CBS's Face the Nation. I think he set the record for most consecutive appearances on Sunday morning with Margaret Brennan. And, and because of his outstanding um, guidance in those interviews, and, as, and I also think because of a really nice chemistry between him and Margaret, chemistry that sort of reminded some of us of Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn, although I, I know a lot of people uh, don't know who I'm referring to, a lot of younger people. Uh, he's been nominated for an Emmy, and I got very worried about all this because the Emmys were last night, and I didn't see the announcement. I thought, oh my God, he, he didn't win. But then I was informed that the daytime Emmys or news Emmys are not till next week, and I want you all to know that I have a serious bet that Scott and Margaret will win for their outstanding performance. So um, we're looking forward to seeing you win the Emmy, Scott. Well, CBS is nominated for the Emmy. I'm just happy to be part of the package. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll give the credit to CBS, uh, which, of course, I suppose they deserve some of it. But it's really you. The, t the content and the talent's what matters. Um, so I've, uh, I've spent a, you know, a lot of time reading the book. You've shared it with me in earlier drafts. And, of course, we've watched you put all this all together. Uh, one way of reading it is to say that it's a pretty long indictment of CDC. Uh, and I want to ask you not so much to take us through what they did wrong or what was wrong about them, but what do we have to do to fix it? And what is it about CDC that made them particularly ineffective in, in, in directing the response to this crisis? Well, look, I think CDC was thrust into a position they were never going to be able to fulfill. Um, there was an expectation that they were going to be able to lead a logistical response to deploy testing across the country to scale the development of a test. Um, to collect information in a real-time fashion, do deep analytics and surface information that would inform real-time policy-making, policy decision-making. Uh, they, they're an agency that's a high science organization. They're very retrospective. They're accustomed to getting bespoke feeds of data, doing deep analytics, and putting out the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Right. That's they're not their, operational. That's, right. They're not an operational agency, and they're not, they're not JSOC. They're not an intelligence agency that's used to putting out regular assessments. They're the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and I think policymakers early on had a misguided perception of what their capabilities were. They thought that they would be able to lead a 
coordinated response across the whole nation and be able to develop and deploy a diagnostic test, be able to put out guidance that would inform all manner of life. Now, in criticism of the CDC, they didn't raise their hand and say, we don't have this. At some point, they sh there should have been self-awareness that they couldn't self-organize around a new mission and they weren't going to be capable of doing this. Eventually, I think the Trump administration had a recognition that there was no one agency that was capable of guiding a response, and that was the creation of Operation Warp Speed. It was a marriage between NIH, the scientists, and FDA, the regulators, and the logistical capability of the Department of Defense to try to scale the manufacturing and development and deployment of a vaccine. We didn't do that early on. We had this misguided expectation that CDC was going to be able to lead a national response, and they couldn't. They didn't have the capability, they didn't have the resources, the authorities, the culture to be able to do what had to get done. Well, Scott, the, I, I get that, and you make that case very strongly and very effectively in the book, and it's clear. Um, but, but people knew CDC, uh, it's been around for years. Is it, was it so hard to see that they weren't up to that challenge, that they weren't set up to be this operational agency? Look, I think part, I, I think part of it was people involved in policymaking. Didn't, well, they didn't, rec they didn't recognize what the limitations were. And also, I think that there was a failure of vision early on to recognize how this was going to unfold, that if this became a global pandemic, there should have been an awareness at some point in January that this, this could be a global pandemic that could engulf the United States. There were a lot of people around the United States at that point who had an awareness of the severity of this. We were writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal at the time. I mean, once the Chinese shut down the Ube province and basically crushed their entire economy to get control of this, that should have been a pretty good indication to us yeah. that this was serious. Right. And so if, if that was the case, then you needed to hit the red button early. You needed an all of the above approach. And they were following a playbook that, that you know, had a CDC engaging in a highly sequential process right. for rolling out the mitigation and the steps that would be ne needed to be taken. So the best example of this is the diagnostic test. So the old playbook has CDC developing a diagnostic test. They get access to the viral samples if there's a new pathogen that's circulating. They design a test. Um, they manufacture it in small quantities, forward deploy it to the public health labs. There's 100 public health labs in this country. Each can do about 100 tests a day. So that's 10,000 tests a day. If that's not enough, then the CDC would work with the clinical labs and academic medical centers, get them stood up. And if that still wasn't enough, you'd, have, you'd turn to the commercial manufacturers and mass right. manufacture testing. I actually got a copy of the sort of plan that CDC laid out uh, of how this was going to unfold, and, it, and they had six months, yeah, right? right? We didn't and have so six months. We didn't have six months. We didn't have six days. Yeah. And so they were following this model. So you can argue two things. Number one, uh, we didn't have the right agency in charge. We didn't have the right approach to trying to get the tools we needed in place to deal with what could be a fast-moving pandemic. But we also didn't foresee what this would become. I think still, there were still people who thought that this could be controlled. Even as late as February, we were looking back at the quotes of officials in late February. And, and in February, there was still skepticism whether or not we could contain this. So let's move forward to today. You, you, I, whether in, a, in an interview or maybe in the book, I read that um, the CDC still has not stepped up to this new operational charge. You say in the book that you think the entity that should do this, you know, in Washington, we're all conscious of the, of the organizational charts. And should we create a new agency? Should we combine agencies? I think you say that you recommend that this, this operational entity that could respond if it happens again should be within CDC. What is the status now of the Biden administration's efforts to address this issue? 
the conversation really hasn't begun. I mean, the book was an effort to try to look at the more systemic shortcomings that, that plagued our response, that left us excessively vulnerable, and try to get beyond just the political dialogue that this is all a failure of politics. I mean, there were clearly failures of politics. I know you're going to ask me about yeah, it, so yeah, I'm not gonna, gonna get, I don't want to tempt you up front to we're get gonna, into that. Well, we're, we're, but, we're starting with the bureaucrats, but we're going to get to the electeds The conversation soon. hasn't begun. And you know, I, I, I'm trying to, I've been having conversations with myself about why. And the only thing I could come to is maybe it's too early to have this discussion because we're still in the throes of the current pandemic. I mean, after 9-11, and I don't mean to compare this to 9-11, but after 9-11, the conversation began immediately on how to reform government to make sure it doesn't happen again. But there was a pervasive, there was a sense that the threat was pervasive, omnipresent, persistent, and we needed to protect ourselves right away. I don't think that there's a feeling right now right. that the threat of the next pandemic is pervasive and it's right around the corner. So there's a little bit more complacency for right or wrong. But I think even before we get to that discussion about how do we, how do we create different infrastructure to guard against the next pandemic? And you're right, I believe it should reside with CDC, but a much different unit, a reconstituted CDC. I think we have to have a more fundamental question about what the role of public health officials in the setting of a crisis of this scale is. Now, I think in a national crisis of this magnitude, a public health crisis, you need public health officials who are properly resourced and empowered. But that notion, I think, has come under assault. And it's not just a right-left debate. Uh, it's not just conservative-liberal. I think that there's a broader swath of Americans who are now skeptical of public health officials, feel the guidance they got was ill-informed, shifting, unreliable, um, and are skeptical of, of empowering public health officials to put out dictates that are going to impede their, their decision making and their ability to sort of take matters into their own hands in terms of how they reduce their individual risk. And we're, so we're going to have to have a very fundamental debate about what the role is of public health in a national crisis, because if we don't, we're not going to get anywhere with Congress. We won't get a consensus in Congress about how to reform CDC and how to properly resource and empower it in these kinds of contingencies if we don't have enough of the public saying, you know what, if public health done right in the setting of a crisis is the right vehicle to respond, and we need public health officials empowered to make these decisions. Yeah, I, I wonder if you're going a little too far there, because people will be uncomfortable with giving that much power to public health officials, but they won't be uncomfortable with making an agency of government more effective operationally, which CDC was clearly not. Yeah, but I don't think you can do one without the other. I think for, this, for, in, in, for CDC to be properly... For CDC to be... Um, it, it, you know, sort of reform to be effective, it's also going to need to be empowered. But they had that whole obsession with protecting their intellectual property. They, were, they wouldn't turn it over to commercial uh, manufacturers. Right, those are, those those are the cultural. You've got to take away those vestiges, right? But that's, that's, um, that doesn't get at the deeper okay. reforms of what needs to happen. So talking about deeper reforms of what needs to happen, um, <laughs> I was going to ask you about FDA, but I want to skip right to WHO. Because you have a, a, a lot of discussion in the book, and it's getting some attention about treating this as a national security risk uh, and having, um, I think you refer to clandestine operations in foreign countries that catch this in advance. Um, tell us about that. Well, look, we, we have a long history now of situations where countries have not been forthcoming about the emergence of dangerous pathogens and haven't shared samples. I mean, I think it was uh, the country of Tanzania, Abigail's here, Tanzania, right? Where the, where the leader denied that there was an outbreak of, um, of COVID in his country right until the point where he was hospitalized for it. Um, in, in SARS-1, China um, wasn't forthcoming about the information. It wasn't until 
you had an outbreak in Toronto and the Canadians sequenced the virus and discovered that there was a novel coronavirus circulating, that the, that the Chinese government finally admitted that there was a novel coronavirus also circulating in China, um, and it wasn't a fungal infection as they had prior, previously maintained. And we can go back multiple examples where countries haven't been forthcoming about new outbreaks of... And uh, China wasn't forthcoming about COVID. And China wasn't forthcoming about COVID. And so every time you have these episodes, particularly after SARS-1, the international health regulations were strengthened. And there were binding commitments made that countries would share source strains, that they would divulge information. Um, and every time, you, every time these episodes have happened, countries haven't been forthcoming. And so the idea that we're going to come together under the World Health Assembly again, which is a body of the World Health Organization, you know, we're going to hold hands and say we really mean it this time, yeah. and it's going to work. I think it's a little Pollyannish. I think we need to, it's great, we need to engage in multilateral agreements, we need to engage in capacity building in places, in hot zones, but we can't rely on that as our own only defense. And so what we're gonna need is the capacity to actually collect the information, to actually monitor for these kinds of events. And so if you look back at the history of, of SARS-2, SARS-CoV-2 in China, we now know, and this is in the public record, that there were dozens of samples of SARS-CoV-2 sent off by Chinese physicians for sequencing in mid-December. Yeah. Those are the ones we know about. We know that there were um, healthcare workers who were becoming infected. That's clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. We know that Chinese physicians were um, saying that there was asymptomatic transmission going on. This is in mid-December. Those were, and we, we know that they knew that it was a novel coronavirus, a SARS-like coronavirus. Those were critical facts that really weren't um, fully revealed until certainly by the end of December, but really until January. We didn't, we didn't sort of ascertain those facts until uh, early January. All that information could have been had. Um, if we were, you know, the information was shared electronically, it could have been intercepted. We could have had sources, human intelligence. And I'm not saying that that wasn't going on. But, 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 but it's interesting you mention that because one of the uh, big characters in the book is Matt Pottinger at the National Security Council. He was the deputy national security advisor at the time. And you depict him as being someone who was kind of this, this oddball at the White House, wearing a mask, telling everything, everybody that this is serious. Well, he actually... He and, and when no one else was wearing a mask, and really people thought it was silly to wear a mask. And so was that an example of someone who was in touch through other sources than World Health Organization of what was really going on in China? Well, so, so Matt, Matt's history, um, part of his history is he had worked for the Wall Street Journal in China and had broken the story about the SAR, initial SARS-1 outbreak. And he had a lot of sources in China. So he was getting information through alternative sources. Matt also um, moved his office out of the West Wing into yeah, the old executive yes, right. building. His right. own act of, of social distancing because he, he was so worried about the precautions being taken in the White House that that he extricated himself from the White House. Uh, and they made a decision on the National Security Council that um, the two top officials on the NSA wouldn't meet in the same room together. Yeah. So they were taking precautions early. And they were taking precautions early when the official position of the White House, now we're going to get into the political questions, uh, the, the wasn't soon, quite as serious. Soon it's only 546. <laughs> well, I, 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 you, you have uh, some strong language in the book about the importance of messaging, being honest with the public, uh, telling the truth, saying when you don't know and being willing to step up to that. And then you tell about two lost weeks when the White House panicked over uh, a remark made by a low-level HHS official. Um, come on now. They're, they're, the book, if you read very carefully, is very critical of President Trump. Am I right about that? Look, I think the, the, 
the book is critical of the political leadership, including the president. Um, I think, you know, we can look back at the early history when the president was reluctant to take aggressive steps early, and there was lost time, and, and we were at a point in time when every week mattered. Um, but ultimately, and I met with the president right before they announced the mitigation, ultimately the administration made a decision to do the 15 days to slow the spread, an unprecedented shutdown of the country, and then they followed it with 30 days to slow the spread after that. So clearly they were taking aggressive, decisive steps. And, but just, and, uh, just, but just in, for one second. Let me finish the thought. I, I, I know that you, I, I'm sorry, but I want to just, the slow the spread thing was a nationwide agenda. One of the important points in the book, I just want to make sure I'm right about this, is that if we did have the testing in yes, place, you're right. the slow the spread could have been targeted at the places where it was serious. Right, so that was my next point. So, yeah, okay. so because, I mean, you know, the point about the diagnostic testing is important because because we didn't have a diagnostic test available, we didn't know where the virus was spreading. We couldn't do what we call sentinel surveillance, which is testing a, a, a representative sample number of people who are presenting with flu-like symptoms, testing negative for flu to turn over the COVID cases. And in fact, in Seattle, they were doing sentinel surveillance. And by the end of February, they were turning over 1% positive cases. This wasn't made public at the time. Someone texted me and let me know that this was going on at the time. So we could have known that the virus was spreading much earlier and that community transmission was underway. And this was a time when we were being told, the public was being told, that there is no community transmission. Yeah. But the other piece of that, the reason why the diagnostic test was a critical missing element was not only did we not know where the virus was spreading, we didn't know where it wasn't spreading. And so when we reached for the population-wide mitigation to tell people to stay at home, very clearly we had to do that in New York. The New York healthcare system was breached. Yeah. Um, we had to do it in New Orleans, we had to do it in Detroit, we had to do it in Chicago, we had to do it in Boston. Did we have to do it in Wyoming, Austin, Jacksonville? Those were places where the virus hadn't spread yet. This was a highly regionalized epidemic at yeah. first. And so we could have saved the mitigation, not implemented in those places, used testing and tracing to try to keep up with the local spread, and saved the political capital to do it down the road when the epidemic eventually got to those parts of the country. But by the time we had to shut down the country in the spring and, they, and then the virus moved to those parts of the country in the summer, people there said, look, we already shut down. We're not doing this again. We lost the opportunity to use mitigation. The final point on that is that if you look back at the 2005 pandemic plan on which a lot of this was predicated, it was the first time that mitigation was comp contemplated at any scale. The idea of closing schools, closing congregate settings, and it was controversial at the time when it got baked into that plan. I tell the whole story of how it got yeah. into that plan. Um, but nowhere in that plan did they ever consider a simultaneous national shutdown. It was always premised that you'd have diagnostic testing and you would deploy the mitigation when the virus got to those parts of the country. And I forget the, how we got into this. Yes, <laughs> so we got into this because we didn't have the tests to target No, but there was shutdown. a point before that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I want to ask you about hydroxychloroquine. Just one more question, because oh, you do tell the story of that. What, what was going on there? Well, look, early on in, in the crisis, um, we were desperate. We didn't know, um, we didn't have anything to treat this. And so doctors were trying things that showed activity in vitro, meaning they showed activity in the test tube against the virus, because we didn't have, quote unquote, in vivo evidence, evidence of uh, activity of drugs in actual patients. And so hydroxychloroquine showed in vitro activity. Hydroxychloroquine shows in vitro activity against a lot of viruses. It's, it's been one of those things that's always fooled us. It showed activity against Ebola. We were using Pepsid. Uh, early on, HHS officials were very optimistic. I had conversations with them that Pepsid may be effective in the treatment of COVID. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't have therapeutics and we were trying everything. I think that the, the story of hydroxychloroquine isn't that we tried it. 
the story is that, in my view, that we didn't firmly establish quickly enough that it wasn't working um, in a definitive way that actually put to rest the speculation that was having a treatment effect. And so because the sort of lure around the drug persisted for so long, it got swept up in a political narrative, and it persists to this day. There was a, a study that came out recently that was a poorly done study out of a, a hospital in northern New Jersey. I don't want to say that derisively. I grew up in New Jersey. So yeah, I, yeah, you know. yeah, um, and yeah. um, it got picked up by a lot of the President, President Trump's supporters to say, look, we were right all along. After multiple studies, definitive studies have come out and said hydroxychloroquine does right. not have a treatment effect. So I think you know, what, the, the point of that chapter is that you need to have an infrastructure in place to do research in a setting of a crisis when you're delivering crisis levels of care. You can't do a randomized placebo-controlled trial and collect 300 variables in the trial and expect doctors to be able to execute that trial. The British did this right because they had these practical studies that were easy to run in the setting of a crisis. We, we didn't participate in the British studies. We had these exquisite studies, and we couldn't enroll them because doctors were trying to keep patients alive. They couldn't enroll patients uh, in complicated studies. So I want to turn now to the vaccine development. Um, first of all, you have, uh, there's news today uh, from, and by the way, one of the great, great things about Scott is he's very upfront and direct and open about his other relationships. You're on the Pfizer board, um, and Pfizer announced today something concerning uh, children. Can, can you just describe what happened today? And then I want to go back to the development of the vaccines, and I want you to also, uh, there are some people in the crowd that, that uh, want to know why Moderna appears to be better than Pfizer's. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Pfizer put out data today from a phase two, phase three pivotal trial on the, on the vaccine that's in development for children ages five to 11. And um, the data um, was positive. It shows that the immune response measured by the antibody production that the vaccine induces in 5 to 11-year-olds is comparable to the antibody response in children ages 16 to 25 who receive the 30-microgram dose. So that a dose in adults and children over the age of 12 is 30 micrograms. The dose that's being developed for children between the ages of 5 and 11 is a 10-microgram dose. And the reason why Pfizer chose a 10-microgram dose is there were multiple different doses tested. And what you want to try to achieve is the lowest dose possible that's going to achieve uh, an antibody response or an immune response that's going to be effective. And so this, this dose looks like it, it achieves a comparable immune response to the adult dose, but at a much lower dose. And so you'll get less, presumably, you'll get less vaccine-related side effects, less fevers, less reactogenicity, less arm pain. So you want, in a, in a young child, you, you want a vaccine that's very safe, right. highly tolerable. And that was the effort to try to test multiple doses to arrive at to arrive at this 10 microgram dose. So, you know, Pfizer has the data from the trial. It was a trial conducted in five different countries, 90 clinical trial sites. It will be submitted to the FDA probably within a matter of days. Um, and FDA has said that the review is gonna be a matter of weeks, not months. Now, having been at the agency, when I would say weeks, not months, I typically meant four to six weeks. Because if, if, if I meant two months, I would say months. Um, I don't know what the current lexicon is. But uh, I, would, I would surmise that this is going to be a four- to six-week review. So you could have a vaccine available for children as early as Halloween, uh, maybe by mid-November if it slips a little bit. And then there's another vaccine in development for children ages six months to four years. That's a three-microgram vaccine. So one-thirtieth the dose of the adult, adult formulation. Um, this is one, the one for five to 11 is one, um, one-tenth. So the development of vaccines is clearly a huge success. They've been proven to be very effective. I think you, you agree with that. I know you agree with that. 
what do you think should be done about vaccine resistance that still exists among Americans? And, 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 and what did we do wrong to allow it to grow to the size that it's at? Yeah, well, look, first of all, I think we ought to um, decide what is success in terms of getting an adult population vaccinated, OK? okay. We now have 76% of adults over the age of 18 that have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Most of them will complete the series. 90% of them will become fully vaccinated. If you look at childhood the childhood immunization schedule, the um, rate of vaccination among children for MMR is anywhere from 90 to 94%. And this is a mandated vaccine. DTaP, MMR, MMR. measles, mumps, and rubella. Okay, right. um, diphtheria, a required pertussis, vaccine. Required vaccine. Diphtheria, pertussis is... Again, 90 to 94%. It's been 90, 94% in recent years, higher. It's highly variable across the country. Connecticut's 98%, other states is less. This year, it's going to be a lot less. Vaccination rates among kids are down. But you know, the 10-year average is somewhere in the low 90s percent. Uh, other vaccines, much less. The compliance with the entire childhood immunization schedule is about 70%. So ask yourself, what do you think you're going to achieve with an adult vaccination? And what are you willing to do to try to push, push vaccination rates increments higher? Um, I think on our current trajectory, and I think the Biden administration has done a very good job rolling this out. I think on our current trajectory with our current policies before the recent announcement about the mandates on small businesses, small, medium-sized, large businesses, private businesses, I think we would have gotten 80% just based on where we were going. Um, but, 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 but Scott, sorry, but, stop for just a second there. I'm sorry, but that's 80% nationally, so that takes Connecticut's 95. And what about, but there are states that are, there are well below 70. Well, but that's true of every, every vaccine. I mean, it's true. Including true. measles, mumps, and? The rate of vaccination for MMR, because I looked in Connecticut, since you invoked my home yeah, state, yeah. is 98%. I'm telling you the national average is between 90 and 94%. So there's some states below 90%. Yeah, but they're not down. at 50. They're not, right. So you, you're right that there are pockets, there are, are greater pockets of vulnerability um, around the country. But, but the, the rates are going up. Yes. Um, and that's so, a good thing, right? We and, want and, the and, rates and, to go. What is the rate we want to get to? <laughs> well, but that's the question. I think we ought to decide what is success here and um, what are we willing to do to achieve it. My, my view is we would have gotten to 80%. I think maybe we can get to 85% if we impose a lot of the mandates that have recently been announced. There's a price to be paid for that because we've now taken something that was sort of furtively political and made it more objectively political now that we're mandating it on, on you know, small businesses. You know, my personal view around this, and I'm kind of going a far afield, but this is yeah. going to be a next question. I'm just anticipating yeah. it, you know, is that you know, you, you, you're going to pay a price for um, put, imposing these mandates on small businesses. Now, this, this is not an individual choice in that, you know, getting a vaccine only affects me. Your choice around getting vaccinated affects your community. It's a collective choice. Um, but it's a collective choice that affects your community. And I think the preferable approach would be to allow these decisions to be made at a community level, allow school boards to mandate it for schools, allow local communities to mandate it at a local community level or businesses to make a decision that the only way I can protect my employees or my customers is by mandating a vaccine. So I don't think governors should be telling small businesses they can't mandate the vaccine if that's the only way you feel you can protect your environment and your community. But I don't think the federal government should be saying that they have to. I think once we cross that bridge, okay. this becomes political. Right, but what about the bully pulpit? What about a leader, a prominent leader and that, with a, that a strong is the role following of public officials, right? A strong following among people that are vaccine resistant stepping up and saying, "I got it, you should get it. Right. We need everybody to get it." A, what a, about a, that? A, a, is that an effective way to get 
more vaccine take-up rates? A current following on Twitter or, or a, 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 a major leader in America stepping up and, and saying we should Look, I think, I think that that's the, the role of public officials is to try to provide consistent messaging and galvanize and, and collective leadership. action among yeah. the public. And, you know, and this is where you, you, you went to the political question early on about the president. Yeah. And what I was going to say is where I was going with that was you know, the, the president and the administration, Trump administration, they did the 45 days to slow the spread, an extraordinary yeah. step. I think where the administration um, wasn't effective and failed was the lack of consistency. You had an administration that at, some, at one point, at some point, right, got to a place, and I had met with the president right before they announced that mitigation, where they felt that this was a serious enough concern that they were going to take a dramatic step of slowing and basically stopping commercial activity. And by the end, the president was ceremoniously taking his mask off while he was still infectious with the virus. Very, a, a very big uh, spread. He, he had come a long way. And I think that the lack of consistency all the way through around an agreed upon set of things that we could all do to try to reduce the spread. We were never going to be able to prevent a pandemic. This was going to spread. Um, but what we needed to do was try to reduce the spread long enough to get our technology in place, try to preserve life, try to protect the vulnerable. And we, in order to do that, we needed to agree on a common set of actions that we could all take on a, a routine basis. You know, it, it sounds individually, if everyone goes shopping one less time a week, Purell's a little bit more and wears a mask, a, a high quality mask when they're in a congregate setting. Oh, and you know, take certain activities that they might have done indoors and does it outdoors. Collectively, that could have a tremendous impact yeah. on, on an epidemic, on, on the contours of an epidemic. We never galvanize public opinion around, at a national level, around a consistent set of actions. That's where I think that there was a failure of leadership. Um, OK, now I want to turn to another little sub-topic uh, in your book, which you've talked about a lot and hasn't gotten as much attention. But it, it's worth uh, facing up to. I think you believe it is. And that is the difference in the impact of this virus on people uh, who are um, the rich versus the poor, minorities. Um, what is your, why, why is that? First of all, is it true the virus has affected uh, in a harmful way lower income Americans, minority Americans, much worse than it has others of us? And what can be done to turn that around? Look, I think that, and I talk a lot about this um, in, in the conclusion of other parts of the book, I, I think that uh, infectious diseases historically have had a disproportionate impact on certain segments of society. Um, people who are from lower income, who work in jobs where they are um, more in contact with a virus, where they come into, where they have to, they're in service jobs where they come into contact with a lot of people, who live in crowded housing uh, situations where if one member of a household gets infected, the whole house is exposed, you can't socially distance within a house. Um, people who face bias in the healthcare system don't have access to the healthcare system, uh, don't, don't get um, adequate response from providers when they enter the healthcare system because of some inherent biases in healthcare delivery. And COVID um, you know, exposed that in a dramatic fashion because it was so pervasive, it, was such a, it, it spread so rapidly over society, and it was so deadly. Um, so it exposed all those weaknesses in our healthcare system, all those inequities. And, and there's and, also a higher level of comorbidities, including obesity. Look, and that's that, that's part of it. But but a lot of those that's a lot of those higher levels of comorbidities among certain communities in our society are also, also related result, to those right. those other factors. These these aren't hereditary comorbidities. They're they're a result of people who lack access to healthcare, don't get good follow up for chronic disease, have access, don't have access to good nutrition, 
So a lot of it's driven by the same social inequities that um, make infectious disease something that disproportionately impacts certain segments of our society. What can be done about it? You know, I think that over the last year we've had, we've, we've gone through a period where we've confronted some of these harsh realities. And whether or not that's going to galvanize enough collective action to actually really confront them in a meaningful way, I don't know. I hope so. Um, I think there's certainly more of an awareness of this. We used to always say in medicine, you know, infectious diseases eventually become diseases of poverty. Uh, they disproportionately impact uh, certain communities. And this, this was no different. It just happened over a very short period of time. Well, I know, I just want to, and where does vaccine resistance uh, fall in the in the causes of this. I don't, I don't think that vaccine hesitancy. Look, there's vaccine hesitancy in in different communities, and there's certainly some vaccine hesitancy in Black and Brown America because of concerns around past practices mm -hmm. um, of how medical products have been deployed in that community and, and distrust. But I don't I don't think that is so disproportionate um, in one community or another that that's what's driving some of these disparities and outcomes. And if you actually look at the data uptake of vaccines. Um, among minority groups has actually been pretty good, especially relative to other thing, other other vaccines as well. So I, I don't think that that explains um, the you know differences that we've seen in outcomes. And the vaccine, when you talk about vaccine hesitancy too, I I, I try to avoid that word because it 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 means different things to different people, and. The reason why people are reluctant to get vaccinated is so heterogeneous that you can't kind of say that there's sort of a monolithic school of thought around reluctance to vaccinate. Different people um, have different concerns. And we're at the point right now, getting back to my point about 76% of adults being vaccinated yeah. with at least one dose and getting close to levels where we're going to sort of top out, notwithstanding your point about that is not even across the country. But we're getting close to levels where getting that next 1% is going to be a lot harder than getting the first 10%. We're fighting for increments of vaccination right now that are going to be hard to achieve because the holdouts are more reluctant. They have, they're people with longer consideration periods. They're people who've been vaccinated, who've been, who've been uh, infected with COVID right. and know that they have some residual immunity. And while I believe that those people are going to eventually have to get vaccinated, they're not wrong that they have immunity that's going to afford them a level of protection, at least for the time being. At some point, that immunity will lapse, and they'll have to get vaccinated, but they'll have a period of protection. So, if, so you said that this decision should be made at the local level among the mandates. The mandates. I got that. So, but, but now, let's say you are an employer of an entity of 180 or 190 employees. What do you do? Do you mandate it, or do you allow an exception for health and um, uh, health and religious objection and a testing requirement. What is the optimal answer on that? I think the optimal answer depends on um, what the setting of business is. I mean, businesses that have a high rate of vaccination uh, already among their workforce are going to be less at risk than if a handful of people are unvaccinated uh, in that environment. Businesses that, you know, have the ability to um, create some social distancing on on job site, people aren't on top of each other. I think you have to look at your own situation. Are you, are you asking for personal advice? No, no, that? but I mean, but th that, first, <laughs> um, that first point you made is kind of interesting. You, you said if you reach a high level, if you're at 90% already, forcing the remaining 10% really doesn't get you much. From a public health standpoint, you're probably not going to achieve a big increment of protection for the overall office trying to get that last couple of percent. But look, if you're, if you're running a facility where people are close together, can't socially distance, they're in a work environment where um, it's conducive to spread, 
vaccination becomes very important. The meatpacking plants. Why was there so many outbreaks in meatpacking plants? First of all, because people were close together, they couldn't socially distance on right. a work site. Second of all, it was a cold facility, and probably that facilitated the spread of a respiratory pathogen. So, you know, you have to judge your, your, the environment which you're working. If you have an environment where there's a lot of uh, older people as well who could be vulnerable, that might instigate how you think about implementing a mandate, Robert. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, we've got a bunch of questions that have pre been pre-submitted, which I'm going to select a few of them of on, but I did want to, uh, I, I sort of, I wasn't kidding about the differences in the vaccines. Is there something we should know about the difference between Moderna and J&J &J and Pfizer? Look, or, or I've been fairly consistent on this all the way through. There, there has been studies that come out that suggest that you know Pfizer may be slightly more efficacious than Moderna and vice versa. I think that these are comparable vaccines um, and are delivering a comparable level of efficacy. And any small differences that you can discern from any one study probably don't have clinical relevance. And the reality is, if there's any small difference in the clinical performance of these vaccines, it's going to come out in the wash once you start administering boosters, because the immune effect from the boosters is so robust that it's going to sort of wash over any, uh, any perceived differences. You know, look, the vaccines were administered on different schedules. Um, we now presume, I believe, a longer interval is better than a shorter interval, because you, you properly prime the immune system if you wait a little longer. Um, interval between shots. Interval between shots. So the Pfizer vaccine was delivered on a three-week interval. The Moderna vaccine was delivered on a four-week interval. I think the other challenge here, and you know, again, you noticed, you noted on top, up top, I'm on the board of Pfizer. But the other, the other issue around the data that's coming out around Pfizer right now is, um, number one, a lot of it's coming out of Israel, where Pfizer administered the vaccines very early, and so and is collecting the data very, um, very rigorously. So you're seeing the effects of the vaccine over a long period of time. And at least in the United States, um, the Pfizer vaccine was authorized earlier, and it was preferentially distributed through hospitals because of the initial requirements that it had to be kept very cold. Um, and so you ended up putting the Pfizer vaccine into both healthcare workers and nursing homes because it was the first out. Mm -hmm. And we, the first people we, we inoculated were the healthcare workers and, and nursing home patients. And you also ended up distributing more of it around hospitals where you would tend to find um, a population that has more pre-existing yeah. health conditions. So it's hard to make apples Got to it. apples comparisons okay. between these. So I skipped over FDA. You were the commissioner of FDA. And one of the questions we've submitted has concerns FDA. We've talked about a CDC. We talked about the WHO. What about FDA? What, 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 would, what should they have been? What, what needs to change there to make them more effective responders to the next one? Look, I don't, I don't know that the FDA is in, in sort of store for as fundamental reform as I articulated around CDC in the book. But I think that there's things we can certainly think differently about. And one is the use of the emergency use authorization. That authorization was originally conceived in Project BioShield, uh, I believe, in 2004 as a sort of, as part of our response to 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. There was a recognition that we needed a way to try to get medical countermeasures onto the market quickly. Um, using different complements of data in the setting of a global emergency or a national emergency. It was eventually evolved to also um, address pandemic preparedness under the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act. But the way that it's been used to date is sort of as a FDA approval process light. And what I mean by that is the EUA process, the emergency use authorization, is still being used very much in a binary sense. The vaccine was authorized for everyone under an emergency use authorization. 
you could use that process to make something available in a much more iterative way. And so let's talk about the vaccine because I talk about this in the book. Yeah. Back in December, um, you know, there was a lot of debate on whether or not the vaccines would be authorized um, before the election on the basis of the interim data from the clinical trial. Ultimately, the FDA and a lot of outside critics put a lot of pressure on the advisory committee in the process to um, you know, sort of demand that the vaccines be authorized on the basis of the full complement of clinical data from that clinical trial. And that, that delayed the authorization of the vaccines probably by about a month, maybe a little less, three weeks. You can, you can sort of argue how much the delay was. Um, but what if we had gotten the interim data from the clinical trial that showed that the vaccine was 90% effective um, at some point in late October and initially authorized the vaccines just for patients, uh, older patients above the age of 65 who lived in Congress settings in nursing homes? That was a point in time when we were losing about 7,000 people a week in nursing homes. When the uh, leadership of CMS said to me privately, we cannot keep COVID out of the nursing homes. The only way to resolve this is to get a vaccine into the nursing homes. They had done everything. They had blocked visitors. They had required right. testing of the staff. And they couldn't keep COVID out of those settings. And 7,000 nursing home patients a week were dying. And so could you have made an early authorization just for that population, allowed the rest of the data set to mature, collected the data from the experience in the nursing homes, and then approved it for a broader population in sort of an iterative fashion, a staged approval? You could do that. The EUA process allows that level of flexibility, but it wasn't imagined that way. So I think when Congress comes back and thinks about how do we give FDA the right tools, the right authorities, and the right instruction on how to use these things in the setting of an emergency, I think that idea of staged market entry of products is going to be very important because it's very clear that there were some groups more at risk of COVID than others, and making these things er available well, earlier, bigger. Right. right? You could have had you could have uh, had a bigger impact earlier. Well, just to be clear on this, are, are the current vaccines that many of us have taken, are, are, were they approved on the emergency basis? And that, does that remain in effect? Or, or is there another? Will they announce that they've finally given it a full approval, not on an emergency basis? Or So the Pfizer vaccine has been fully licensed. Fully licensed. It's, now, it's now got Past a, that. Right. It's got biologics license application. The Moderna vaccine is still pending full approval. They got their application a little bit later than Pfizer. You would expect that they will get a BLA at some point soon. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Last couple of questions just about what's ahead of us. Is this, is this another one coming? And, and, and how, how likely is that? And uh, also, is this particular virus going to mutate again? and to give us something else after Delta? So one of these multi-part questions yeah, I sorry. can't remember. Do them, so, oh, sorry, I apologize. So, <laughs> so, so you know, the conventional wisdom among some, if you, if you talk to the genetic epidemiologists who I spend a lot of time talking to, and, and I, I value their opinion, because they look at, um, they look at the, the virus, but they also look about at how the virus is behaving in nature. They think that this virus has mutated very quickly over a short period of time and reached basically a new fitness level. And its rate of mutation is going to slow down. It's mutating at the rate of influenza B right now, but they feel it will slow down. And if new mutations occur that partially escape the immunity that we've acquired, either from natural infection or vaccination, it's probably going to be within the Delta lineage. That Delta, and there's already 20 different variants of Delta that Delta is going to mutate in ways that's going to partially, not dramatically, but partially evade our immunity and we'll need to update the vaccines. And so one consideration is do we 
um, evolve the vaccines in the future towards a Delta variant backbone vaccine? Is Delta the new backbone for the next vaccine? And that's a discussion that's actively going on right now um, among public health officials and probably something that we'll have to make a decision around for sort of the fall 2022 uh, Delta season. But you will, you're going to see continued evolution as far as Will you see something that dramatically that changes in a dramatic way where it could one day we wake up and it completely evades our immunity? I think it's unlikely. There's a, t there's a tail risk, but I think it's unlikely because this virus, um, it hasn't been able to perform this feat yet. What it needs to do is change the conformation of the tip of this spike protein that sits on its surface enough so that our immune systems no longer recognize it. That's the dominant, the immunodominant epitope on the virus's surface. Um, so that's the part that our immune systems develop antibodies against. So somehow it has to change that. But that's also the part that the virus uses to attach to our ACE2 receptors in our lungs. So the virus has to say, okay, I'm going to change this so much that this human body no longer is going to recognize this tip anymore. <laughs> but the tip still has to be good enough to attach to the human receptors. And it just so happens that biology is really clever. And the aspects of that... I think we need an illustration of the, this. The, with, you know, the aspects of that protein that we develop antibodies against are all the, also the very aspects that it uses to attach to our, our lungs. So it's a hard... It's, not, it's, a, it's a long way of saying it's a hard feat to pull off. Not impossible, but hard. And I think it's somewhat reassuring that we've seen so much virus around the world and it hasn't been able to really do that yet. So what about the potential of something else? You know, we, you, one of the yeah, look, we, the will see, uh, we will see another virus that threatens a global pandemic. Now, my, my thesis in the book is that we need to come up with an infrastructure that prevents the next pandemic. We can't go to the American people and say, we're going to allocate tens of billions of dollars and reform government so that the next time this happens, it's not quite so bad. I don't think that that's a good sales pitch. I think we need to our focus needs to be how do we prevent the next pandemic. And the category of viruses we need to be worried about are RNA viruses that's, that um, are respiratory viruses. And what I mean by that is viruses that replicate through RNA. And the reason we worry about viruses that replicate through RNA is because they undergo rapid mutation or they have the capacity to. And if you're thinking about that category of viruses, it includes coronaviruses and influenza, but it includes a lot more, like Nipah virus and others. And viruses that have the capacity to spread through respiratory droplets or aerosols have the capacity to spread very quickly. A virus that spreads through the blood can spread quickly, but not, it can't not race like around the world as quickly as something yeah. that spreads through respiratory pathogens. And the other piece of that is that we've proved uniquely um, challenged at implementing respiratory precautions. This virus hurt us a lot more than it hurt other parts of the world. This was an asymmetric risk to the United States because it was a respiratory pathogen. So why, why, why? Why did it hurt us more? Because why did respiratory pathogen cause us bigger problems than others? Because we talk with each other more closely? Because we couldn't galvanize around, we couldn't implement effective respiratory precautions in a, in a consistent way. I mean, we couldn't even agree to wear masks. And respiratory pathogens uh, pose, in certain aspects, a greater risk to industrialized nations that where you have dense cities, where you have people working in conditions where they're closely packed, office buildings, shop floors, things we like that. We have a lot of freedom. And in an agricultural uh, environment where people are spaced apart, yeah. it's going to pose less of a risk than okay, in, down, in downtown New York. Right. Last question for me that's also in the list. Um, you've been watching the current president, President Biden, and his team. What are, you, what are your views on how they're doing on all of this? And, and let's leave out the mandates. You've discussed the mandates, the president's recent statement. What about the, the things you really care about, the structural, the changes to the, the agencies that actually do this work, the leadership they're putting in place? 
What's your take? Well, look, I don't, I don't think that they've engaged a fundamental reform of government. I think that the Biden administration came in um, with a ethos that they're going to they're gonna, uh, allow the agencies to do their scientific work, and we're, they're not going to interfere with the scientific work of the agencies. And I suspect that on some level they have a little bit of buyer's remorse because there, there were the uh, Trump administration you know, very clearly interfered in certain agency functions. So their, their solution might have been wrong in terms of some of what they did. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't right to tweet at FDA. That wasn't a good way to reform the FDA. This is a very good point. But the diagnosis wasn't completely wrong. Right. There was reason to be frustrated with the performance of the agencies. So when the Biden administration you came in. frustrated with the performance of the experts and the scientists. And, and, and the function of the agencies and the information that the White House right. was getting. And Biden the people came in and said, just trust the experts. Yeah, and so, That's not going to help either. And so now that they have a harder time exerting you know, control over the agencies like they did with the boosters, yeah. which they had a very good rationale to do what they did, but it looked like they were now interfering with the scientific work of the agencies. So I, I don't think either approach is optimal. Right. You've got to be able to, you know, politically appointed officials have to be able to reform government. Right. And I, I think that they're in a harder position they're to learning do it. They're learning. But did, did, don't you have something in either an interview or the book that a couple people who are in CDC have now left because they're being pushed around by the politicals. Is, is that what you think is happening? I, I don't know the exact reason why those officials, it was senior officials, but um, I don't know exa the exact reason why those officials left. I think that there were sort of multiple reasons why they left. But you know, I think that the, the, the CDC director is attempting to reform the agency, but it's very hard to do. Um, it's very hard to self-organize in a setting of a crisis, self-organize right. differently. Yep. She's got to come in and try to boost morale and support the agency. And it's hard for her to come in and sort of point out all the criticisms and the flaws and try to reform them, especially in the setting of a crisis where you need the agency to perform as best it can. Okay. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for participating in it. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope our listeners listening in enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Scott, for Thanks all that you've done. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.